As we move into a new section of the book of 1 John, I would like for us to read the entirety of 1 John 4, 7 to 21. 1 John 4, 7 to 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever love has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen, ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As I said earlier, over the next three weeks, including this morning, we'll be covering all of these verses with Verses 7 to 11 coming today, verses 12 to 16 next Lord's Day, and of course, Lord willing, verses 17 to 21 the following Sunday, May 3rd. Let me also remind you that when I began this series of messages, these series of messages from 1 John back in November of last year, I mentioned that three major themes continually leap out at us when we read the whole of this great book. Those three themes, of course, are truth, obedience, and joy. John says we must all know the truth about who Jesus really is, which, of course, is also an opportunity to refute false teaching about the person of Christ. We must also, he says thematically through this book, obey God as we walk in the light 
the light of who He is, and we must also do this with expectant joy, the joy of knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we have fellowship with each other and with God through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Someone asked me later after I mentioned in that introductory message why I didn't include the concept of love as a dominant theme since it seems to be more prominently stated in 1 John than does joy. And in one sense, this, of course, is absolutely true. The word and therefore concept of love appears far more often than the word and the concept of joy. I grant you that. But what I had in mind when I mentioned the word joy was actually a combination of the two words, joy and love and obviously their attendant concepts. You could say, I believe, without doing any violence at all to the Apostle John's teaching, that the book of 1 John, and for that matter, 2nd and 3rd John, that they all ring with these three themes, truth, obedience, and joyous love. Joyous love. Yes, It is Christian love which helps us to understand the dominant landscape of 1 John. But it is a certain kind of love. It's a biblical, Christian love that we're talking about here. We aren't describing love the way the world loves. And I think that's why we need to combine the concepts of joy and love to produce Joyous love, because really only Bible people, only Christians, only saved individuals understand and show that love for one another because it comes from a heart of gratitude and in light of the graciousness of our God, which the world, of course, knows nothing about. We love others because it is born out of a Godward focus of that love. And we have an initiated love toward us, which then becomes, as the first and foremost love, we know anything about a way to love others. In a Christian, biblical, distinctive sense. And I think you'll see this borne out in verses 7 to 21 of 1 John chapter 4. Now, this morning... I want to show you five specific aspects of joyous Christian love from 1 John 4, 7 to 11. Five specific aspects of joyous Christian love. And in one sense, while we're looking at these five specific aspects, you might assume that I'm talking about ten of them because I give a love this and that for my outline points. But really, it's the love in five specific ways that I'm talking about which are then elucidated or defined or grounded upon what John has to say about that specific kind of love. And so really, we're talking about five specific aspects of Christian love, joyous Christian love, from 1 John 4, 7 to 11. And I decided in today's message, to limit 
my thoughts from verses 7 to 11 because of what I find there. If you'll notice, verse 7 says in the beginning, Beloved, let us love one another. While verse 11 also says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now this seems to me to be a wonderful rounding out of the first major section of this paragraph and a good place, I think, to break off this first of three messages. This seems to me to be what grammarians could call an inclusio. That means that John starts this paragraph with the command to love one another in the body of Christ and then he ends this first major section with the same or very similar exhortation that we ought to love one another in the body. And everything in between these two statements also hammers home this subject of love. So it's really a beautiful inclusio that begins with a command and ends with an exhortation that says, in essence, love others and I'm going to tell you why. And so, let's begin our journey. Here's the first aspect of joyous Christian love from 1 John 7. Love's command and source. Love's command and source. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. First, love's command. Love's command. You see it there? Beloved, let us love one another. Does that sound familiar to you? You may have heard that children's song that if you've grown up in the church, you've heard for many, many years. You'll be delighted to know that I won't be singing it. But it is very familiar to us, which of course was directly composed from this verse. And as simple as that song is to sing, the Apostle John's command here is equally simply stated and straightforwardly given. And I think that makes all kinds of sense because all we really need to see in a command about love is to love. It is a command to love. We're commanded to love one another in the body of Christ. It isn't an option, this love for others. It isn't an option for us. It's a commitment we must make to each other. And if you haven't been with us, or maybe you have been with us, and you haven't really seen that this, this love one another drum is what John is continually beating upon. Look back at 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 3.10 By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love 
the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. I suspect John continues to drive this matter home to our hearts because it is not familiar to the unregenerate man. Yes, I meant to say the unregenerate man. You see, though John is speaking to Christians here, see his reference to the term beloved, he's talking to Christians, he's nevertheless reminding them to do what presumably for years as non-Christians they did not have the habit of doing. And I bring this point up to say that for many of us, maybe even most of us, if we have lived so much of our years outside of Christ before coming to Christ, we developed some really, really bad natural habits. And of course, at the top of that list, as 1A underneath pride is the concept of self-love. Self-love. We developed as non-Christians oh so easily and oh so naturally because of our natural fallen condition, the habit of self-love to the degree that we were not loving others as we ought. In fact, we didn't do that because we couldn't. We didn't have the capacity to do it. That was true of us as well, just like John was telling those to whom he first wrote. Just as it is with everyone who lives outside of Christ. And even though John is writing to Christians here, those whose hearts have indeed been changed by Christ, he must repeatedly remind and exhort and command them and us to do what in our history before knowing Christ we were unable to do. It was natural for us to love ourselves chiefly, preeminently, predominantly, and we didn't love. Now you say, but we've come to Christ. That's true. And we have to constantly fight, even though new in Christ, even though regenerate, even though born of God, we need to fight against the temptation, all of those habits that were formed Long ago, over many years, for many of us, we have to fight against that temptation because it's always so readily around us, even though it might not now be in us to the degree that it was in us before, and even though we were having sin's power broken in our lives as we were so self-loving, we must be continually reminded, continually reminded. That's why John does it in 1 John 2 and 1 John 3 and now here in 1 John 4. We must be commanded again and again and again to love. That's love's command. Love's command and now love's source. Love's source. Notice what he says, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another... For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now this is fascinating. Because for the unregenerate person, 
like so many of us were in our unbelieving state, and as I said, for many of us, possibly years and years in that state, to be reminded is a good thing, to be exhorted, to be commanded is a good thing, and yet, because we now are Christians, we have a colossal but. That colossal but is this. Yes, this is the way that you used to love. It was yourself. And every time you loved others, it was for the sake of being loved by them. You were motivated to love only as it related to your opportunity to be loved back. And you didn't love God. And you knew that when Christ came into your life and He totally changed the paradigm of your whole life And the veil was rent, you understood, it was taken away, and you realized for the first time in your life, wait a minute, I'm not to love myself supremely, I'm not supposed to be involved in self-love, self-gratification, self-aggrandizement, I'm actually now, new in Christ, able for the first time to love others, to love them. So, yes, it's true that I that I'm called, I'm commanded to love. And yes, it's true that in my unregenerate condition, my unsaved station in life, I didn't understand that. But, colossal but, now I understand. I get it. Let us love one another. The command for love is from God. Love's from God. And whoever loves... If that's the condition you're in, if that's the state you're in, a lover, it's because you have been born of God and it's because you know God. This is marvelous truth. Because what John is saying is, understand the source of your love. Understand the origin of it. Understand that it didn't originate with you. That you didn't just suddenly wake up one day and say, you know, I have been... I've been so loveless, unless, of course, I'm thinking about myself. I haven't been loving others as I ought to love. Oh, sure, there are non-Christians who might say that, but every time they attempt to do it, at least in that Godward focus or with that Godward focus, it always is foiled upon their plan because they don't have the capacity to do it. And you and I didn't wake up one day and just said, Oh, I think I'll have a Godward focus today. No, not at all. Indeed, if anybody loves, there's anything like Christian love, it is precisely because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. John defines how it is that we can love anyone else at all. And he says... We must love. We're commanded to love one another for that love of ours is in reality from the source of God Himself. And whoever loves, which means all true believers because they're the only ones who have the capacity to love others, we have been born of God, future tense and perfect tense, and knows God. Perfect tense. It's true and it has continuing validity or continuing reality. You and I didn't truly love others in our unregenerate condition, but now, but now, because of the very concept and reality of love itself, we owe our source of love to God Himself. That's a major point John's making here. 
it originates from God who is the creator of love. And whoever loves does so because he has been born of God. That's a major theological point. You know, John, both in the Gospel of John and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and in the book of Revelation is a preeminent theologian. It's not just a bunch of Bible verses strung together. It's John the theologian, John the evangelist, John the pastor who is telling us something here theologically that if you and I love, it is because we have been born of God from above to love. I like the way the ESV translates it. Born of God. Fathered by God. Fathered by God. Born from above. We have the capacity to love others because we've been born of God. Now, there may be a rumor. You may have heard it. And I'll admit that it's true. I love books. And I've just come across a brand new one by John Piper called Finally Alive. And the entire book is a set of sermons on the topic of being born of God, being born from above, being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And I love books like this because they're pastoral and theological and practical. And so I'm recommending, strange as it may seem, another book to you, Finally Alive. And on this very text, this is what John Piper says. Listen carefully. The new birth, that's regeneration, That's being born of God, born from above, fathered by God. The new birth is the act of the Holy Spirit connecting our dead, selfish hearts with God's living, loving heart so that His life becomes our life and His love becomes our love. John, John the Apostle, means that love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what He is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life. And an indispensable part of that life is love. It is an experience of the divine love and an extension of that love to others. That's good. He's saying that if you and I love others in that Godward focus, in that Christian sense, in the biblical definition of what love truly is, it is because that love has come to us from God and it flows through us to others because it is God's love. The only reason we can love others is due to the fact that we've experienced the incredible love of God which comes to us from Him who is the source from His own nature to ours. Now that is exciting news, especially if you think about who you were outside of Christ. That the God of the universe who created the world would also impart to you by His very nature His own divine love that you and I would then take that love and we would be impacted by it and then we would want to share that love with others. That's incredible. Just think of where you were. Just think of who you were outside of Christ. That's incredible news. We have a relationship with God who imparts life and love to us that we can love 
others. Love's command and love's source. That's wonderful as an aspect of God's love. Here's the second. Love's knowledge and essence. Love, love's knowledge and essence. Look at verse 8. Here is almost in a sense the opposite of what John has just said in one sense. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, remember when he said in verse 7 that if you love, it's because that love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Knowledge of God, intimacy with God, relationship with God. And now notice what he says about love's knowledge. It's the opposite of what he's just taught us in verse 7. If anyone is found to be unloving, it reveals that the reason for this is the person does not know God. They don't have a relationship with God. This is a a bold and declarative statement. If you don't love others, you don't know God. You you can give all the excuses you want in the world. You can equivocate on what love is defined as being in your own mind. You can debate with God about why you just can't love others. But John emphatically and in black and white fashion pronounces that anyone who does not love, that is love characteristically, habitually, the Godward focus of love, does not know God. Does not know God. Remember a relationship with God. John 1.10 The world was made through Christ, yet the world did not know Him. John 17, 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these disciples know that you have sent me. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 1 John 3, 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. It's as simple as as this. You're characterized as a person who loves God and therefore loves others. You know God. If you're not characterized as a person who habitually, as the pattern of your life, loves others and recognizing that that loving of others is from God Himself, you don't know God. It's as simple as that. This is love's knowledge. One of the aspects of the love of God is that He imparts His love to others. And if someone isn't in their life experiencing and then giving that love to others, it's because they don't have love's true, intimate knowledge. It's because they don't know God. That's true. That's what the Bible says. This is what it teaches right here. Black and white terms. No equivocation. You can't just say, well, wait a minute. I mean, just because... I'm not a Christian. You say I can't love. Well, not in the Godward sense. Not in the biblical Christian distinctive sense. And it's because you don't know God. You don't have a relationship with Him. You may think you do, but you don't, according to John, if you're not loving in the way that God loves, in the way He imparts His love. And then, in order to nail it down tight about someone either having the knowledge of God's love, which is the knowledge of God Himself, or not, He describes love's essence. Notice what he says in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because what? God is love. says the same thing in verse 16. God is love. What does that mean? That's love's essence. 
That's love's essence. The reason the world does not love each other is because it doesn't know God, for God's very essence is love. God is love. And please notice, the Apostle John does not say love is God. See, that would be an abstraction. No, it's not love is God, it's God is love. Of the very essence of his nature is love. And John's earlier written in 1 John 1, 5, hasn't he, that God is light. And 1 John 1, 9, that God is faithful and just. And here he says that God in his essence is love. When God imparted his life to you, he gave you Christ. And he gave you Christ and made you a partaker of the divine nature, transformed you into being a person who loves others because God says, I want you to be like me. Now, we're not going to be like God in every sense and in the ultimate sense and in the divine sense of being exactly like Him in perfection. And even though even in heaven we'll be perfect, we will never be like God because He never had a beginning and He will never have an end. And we had a beginning. And even though we won't have an end, at least spiritually speaking, and we'll be resurrected with our resurrected bodies, we'll be like God but in a limited sense. And yet, even with this communicable attribute of God, it says God is love. And that means that of the essence of our new life in Christ, we can love the way God loves. And that's an amazing aspect. It's amazing. I mean, just think of who you were as a non-Christian. Just think about it. Just think about your attitudes. Think about your actions. Think, think about who you were and how you operated and what your motives were. Think about now. Think about how when you hear the Word of God preached or you read your Bible or you pray to God or you hear music that lifts and exalts our Savior Jesus Christ or you pray for somebody else, or you genuinely want to reach out and meet their needs, and you hear of that need, and some of you are so very troubled that you can't meet that need in the way that you otherwise want to meet it, or that you're so constrained to meet that need that you do so, and that you do so wonderfully well. All of those thoughts and all of those attitudes and all of those actions are coming from divine love, because God is love, and He's imparted that to you. He gives that to you. That's His gift. So wonderful that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is what the Bible says about love for God and love for others. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The imitators of God. You say in the ultimate sense? No, of course. Of course not. Can't do that. But in the relative sense, in the sense that He's imparted His divine life to you, 2 Peter 1, 3, we are made partakers of the divine nature. God actually has imparted to us a measure of His divine life. And one of the measurements of that divine life is that God is love of the very essence of who He is. And He's imparted that to us so that we can love and feel the impact of His love for us and therefore our desire to love others. That's, that's marvelous. 
if you are a Christian, what is welling up inside of you is thankfulness and gratitude to God for the fact that you love anybody at all. That you love anybody at all. Love's essence is that God is love. And of the essence of that love, you've been made a partaker so that you can love as well. It's a marvelous truth. And he goes on with a third aspect, love's incarnation and life, verse 9. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In this, this love, this love of God, God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. You know, do you want to know what is one of the amazing aspects of the love of God? It's love's incarnation. Love's incarnation. In this, the love of God was demonstrated, made manifest, proven among us that God sent His only Son into the world. Can you imagine what your life would be like, what my life would be like if God had decided in eternity past never to send a redeeming sacrifice into the world to save sinners? We'd be in hell. We'd be haters of God. Insolent, proud, arrogant, boastful. We would, we would bring the world into chaos and utter destruction. But God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish so that the world wouldn't be destroyed, so that there wouldn't be ultimate chaos for those who believe in Him, loves incarnation. Notice what He says. He sent, key word, He sent His only Son into the world. You have an NIV, it says, one and only Son. That's a, that's a good translation. Right there. His one and only Son. You know what it does? It proves the point that God loves us by bringing an incarnate Son who is His one and only Son into the world to redeem the world. This is the great truth of the incarnation of Jesus. John 3.17 God did not send, that's that key word, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. All of this theological language by John packed away here God sent, God did, God loved. God sent His only Son into the world. John 1.11, He came to His own. We didn't go to Him. We didn't pursue Him. We didn't reach out to Him. He did all of that to us. Colossians 2.13, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. God did it. He made you alive. And that carries us right into the second part of this verse. Love's life. 
What was the purpose of God in demonstrating this love of sending his one and only son into the world? John says it is this, so that we might live through him. That's grace. That's love. Demonstrated in the incarnation of Jesus all the way through to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and his soon coming return so that we might live through him. That's the purpose. That's one of the grand purposes of the incarnation so that we as dirty, rotten scoundrels as sinners might nevertheless live through him. That's that's beyond description. That's beyond compare. That's beyond definition. That's beyond weight. It's beyond impact that we might live through Him. No wonder John says in chapter 3, verse 1, Oh, see how great, how marvelous, how majestic is the love of God given to us. How great is it that that the Father would lavish upon us this love and call us children of God. How marvelous is this? Titus chapter 3. This is maybe even one of Dr. Zimmick's favorite passages. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness... Notice this, and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Saying it in different words, same theme. This is grand. This is marvelous. If you're not rejoicing in your heart, could I suggest that it may be that you're not a Christian at all? Because if you are a Christian, at whatever level or stage of your maturation, your heart leaps for joy because you say in that heart, I know where I was headed. I know where I was going. I know the road that I was on. A road to a pointless nowhere until God's grace was visited upon me. His grace, His loving kindness appeared. God sent it. God did it. God initiated it. That's why in Romans 5, maybe one of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 5, it tells us this about the character of God and the love of God. Romans 5, 8, and it says it so clearly God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were in that Christ-rejecting, God-hating condition, Christ died for us. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We have life through Him so that we might live through Him. That's love's life. We have life, not deadness. Not deadness in trespasses and sins. Not on the road to hell 
not on the path of destruction. We are on the road to life because we've been given life and we will receive ultimately eternal life. It's amazing. It's amazing about the love of God. And he gives us a fourth one. Verse 10, love's initiation and price. In this is love. It's almost like John is writing the Proverbs. The Proverbs for the New Testament Christian about love. And he just goes from one statement in these verses to the next, all of them self-contained. And he says in verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as I've alluded to, this is love's initiation. Do you see it there? This is, this is why Calvinists teach what they teach. Here it is. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. You see, it's God's initiation. We just didn't decide to do this on our own. We're just not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and saying, I think I'll love God today. We love Indeed, what defines our very ability to love others is because God decided to love us. This is, this is marvelous truth. And it's so complementary and so expansive of the idea of total depravity. Because in total depravity, it means I didn't love God. I wasn't walking toward God. I was depraved through and through in all of my being. Not at all did I want to love God. I wanted to love myself. I hated God. I despised Him. I despised His law. I was estranged from Him. And I had no thought of following Him. But God, because of His great love with which He loved us, initiated that love toward us. And if that hadn't happened, you and I would be in a Christ-hating, God-forsaken condition forever and ever. And we will be judged by that. We would have been judged by that but God initiated His own love toward us. Romans 5, 6, For while we were weak, don't miss that, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Aren't you glad for the right time? The right time. God's time. God's initiation. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God has perfect timing. And I'm thankful that He has the time at all for us. 1 John four nineteen. Here it is. We love because He first loved us. That's why... Calvinistic theology, Reformed theology, is what it is. Because it understands that God is the one who takes the initiative. It's not me deciding for Christ in the sense that I was doing it on my own, I thought about it on my own, I decided to believe in Jesus. It is because God regenerated my heart. He caused me to be born from above. He fathered me. He sired me. And because He did that, I then made a conscious choice with the responsibility of my will, but being regenerated by God Himself, my will was to choose Christ because it was God's will for me to choose Christ. And I did, because He loved me. He set His love upon me. I love because He loved me. 
And you say, okay, I can affirm that. Love's initiation. But what's the price of it? What's the price? Here's love's price. Look at the latter part of that verse. Verse 10. The price of love was this. God sent His Son, His one and only Son, to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, satisfaction. God satisfied His own wrath by sending His own Son so that in His initiative, you and I might believe. You say, well, that sounds one-sided. It most assuredly is. It most assuredly is. You say, but where's my will? Where's the human will? Where's my responsibility? It's there, but thank God that in my own responsibility, in my own weakness, in my own inability, if left to myself, I would never have chosen Christ. Never. I would never have walked down that road. I would never have loved God. I was walking down the road where I was the captain of my own salvation. I thought I could do it all on my own. But when I realized I couldn't, it was only because God had infused me with the ability to open my eyes and unstop my ears that it was God Himself who I was after. But I didn't know it, didn't realize it, didn't affirm it. And in one sense, I was after God all right. The God of me. I was God. I was captain. I was master. And he opened my eyes. And like John Newton, I became not someone who assumed that as a slave trader and as a wicked, evil person trading people as though they were stock, that it was amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And it was at a supreme price. Not anything I did. Not a price I paid. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Doesn't He say that over in chapter 2, verse 2? Doesn't He say that? He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. He redeemed us. I was thinking about this last night. I was picking my wife up from the airport. She had gone to San Antonio, Texas to teach a group of ladies in a local church there on discernment, how to be a discerning person. And I was waiting to pick her up. And as you would imagine, the plane was late for a couple of hours. And so I had the opportunity to finish listening to a book on audio tape. And it was a CD that was given to several of the pastors, all of the pastors, I guess, at the Grace Church Shepherds Conference on George Marston's book, A Short Life of Jonathan Edwards. Five CDs, and I was listening to the final of the five CDs, and I was listening there for about an hour in the car, and I was thinking about God's love, and I was enraptured with this concept that God initiated His love toward me, And that beauty of that love is so undeniable and it draws you to it. And this is what the audio tape says, and I've borrowed it from the actual book itself. This is what Edward says. Listen to it carefully. Beauty. Beauty is the term that Edwards most typically used to describe the character of God's ongoing actions in creation and redemption. That's a word he loved, the word beauty. Beauty for Edwards is not just an object of passive contemplation, but rather a transforming power. If one sees a beautiful person, said Edwards, one cannot help but be drawn to that person. 
One's heart is drawn to that beauty and one's actions will follow one's heart. So it is with the surpassing beauty of God as revealed in Christ. The most beautiful thing in all reality is for a perfectly good being to lovingly sacrifice himself for rebellious, undeserving, and ungrateful creatures. If one glimpses the perfect beauty of such love, one cannot help but be drawn to it. So the role of the evangelist is to convey the truth of God's revelation so that sinners who are blinded to true beauty by their self-love may through God's grace have their eyes open to truly see it. If they do, their hearts will be changed and their lives will be dedicated to loving and serving God and others. It's a perfect application of the message. Why do you think I wrote it down? Because it perfectly reflects the concept of loving God and others. If you see something as so beautiful, so majestic, so marvelous, you're drawn to it. The beauty of someone's face, you're, you're drawn to it. It's a, attractive to you, Edwards is saying. And if you see the beauty of God in Christ, how in the beauty of that love, Christ was sacrificed God's wrath was propitiated even though it is propitiated toward rebellious and undeserving and wicked creatures. And yet somehow, even in that wickedness, because of the transforming power of the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, God draws us to see the beauty of Christ and we see the beauty of Christ and we're so drawn to it because it's so lovely to us that we cannot do anything but to confess our sins and to believe in that Christ. And as we're drawn to Him, we recognize our sinful wretched, rebellious condition, and we say, God is love. God is love. And you know what else you see? Love's obligation and duty. As we close, look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, listen to the price. Listen to the price in that. What was the price that was paid for love? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's, that's the obligation. That's love's obligation. John points back to what he's just said and in effect concludes this. Beloved, if God so loved us like this, how? How did He love us that He loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son to be the satisfaction, the payment for our own sins? We also ought to love one another. He just, he just grounds that. It's the very basis for any loving of others. It's to see the obligation the price that was paid for love. And when I see that, I say, of course I'm obligated to love. I can't turn a, a deaf ear, blind eye to somebody in need if I have the material goods to meet the need. If I have that and I turn away, I close my heart off, 
I've got this visceral reaction that I'm suppressing because I don't want to love because it means that I'm going to have to sacrifice. It means that I'm going to have to sacrifice my goods, my times, my efforts. Then John is saying, you don't know anything about the sacrifice that was paid by Christ. You don't know anything about that. But if you see it, if in beauty you're drawn to it, then you realize, oh, the most maximum price has been paid. How could I I not do these things? How could I not be obligated to respond and reach out in love to others? Oh, my friends, do do you grasp the depth of that love? Do you see it? Do you see it as the the basis for our obligation to love others? We are obligated to love others in the body of Christ because of what our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, did to redeem us from sin's enslavement. How could we not sense, how could we not sense our complete and total obligation to love others? in the way we ourselves have been loved. How could we? It it, it just does not compute. It's not the way it should be. Listen to the love relationship between Christ and the Father in John 17, that high priestly prayer. Listen to a few of these verses. Listen, John 17. I am coming to you, Christ is coming to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, his teaching ministry, that they, his disciples, may have joy. There it is. Joyous love fulfilled in themselves. I do not ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Through John the Apostle, through his word, what he's saying in First John 4, that they these disciples that come after the original disciples, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me, that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. You see the reciprocal nature of love? God loves the Son. He sent the Son to love a wicked humanity. And He redeemed that wicked humanity through His love and through that glaring love And the reciprocal nature of the love between the Son and the Father. I see the magnanimous love that was mine because of the cross and the satisfaction for the wickedness of my own life. And I see the price that was paid. And I see the obligation that I owe. And I turn around and I love others because we're all one in that love. That's that's love's obligation. You see, my friends, if the premise is true that God so loved us, we are obligated to love one another in order to show that love with which God demonstrated in Christ for us. Is it any wonder then that love has a duty? Look at the latter part of verse 11. We also ought to love one another. I mean, in a sense, you almost ask yourself the question, why, why does he have to repeat that? I mean, after all that we've talked about this morning, why does he say it again? Because we developed so many habits before that we need to be reminded constantly again and again and again about love's duty. And you say, yeah, but what about 1 Thessalonians 4? I mean, apparently Paul told the Thessalonians that they didn't really need to be reminded about love. You remember 1 Thessalonians 4? 
9 to 11. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. I don't need to tell you how to love because you're already doing it. Well, apparently they did not need to be reminded as much as we might need to be reminded. But he does go on to say this, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So even if you know how to love in a good way, in a really fantastic way, and you're doing it, maybe not in the ultimate optimum way that you know you should, but you're striving toward toward it, Paul and John can say even something like this, just excel still more. Just love more. And it's because you understand the love of God as you ought. He says, he says this is the oughtness of it. Beloved, if God so loved us in that way, we also ought, moral oughtness, to love one another. And when I obligate myself to do it because of what God has initiated in Christ for me, it's really no obligation at all. It's really no duty at all. It's a delight. It's a delight. Do you delight to love others? If you do, it's because the love of God abides in you. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed by your love. We're overwhelmed by it. And yet even in that overwhelming sense of your love, it's so fading, so fleeting in our minds because of our past and because of the fight against the world and the devil and our own human sinfulness. We ought, yes, to love one another. But we fail in that love because it seems so fleeting in our minds because of all these things, even though we've been again convicted and challenged and confronted with your love. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for the command. Thank you for the exhortation. And may we not so easily in the future lose sight of the price that was paid to show us even what love looks like in the first place. Show us anew and afresh each and every day the price that was paid in Christ so that we might love Him and others as we ought. In His name, amen.